0: We've collected all of our favorite ways that you can help support the show while doing any holiday shopping this year into one place at bestoftheleft.com slash holiday. I'll have more to say about that during the show, so hear me out on those details a bit later, but for now... Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall take a look at the context of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, including the labor abuses endemic in the construction of the facilities, the authoritarianism and anti-LGBTQ policies of the Qatari government, and the corruption fundamental to the inner workings of FIFA that brought the tournament to Qatar in the first place. Clips today are from Front Burner, Pro Revolution Soccer, Burn It All Down, Today Explained, Channel 4 News from the UK, DW News from Germany, France 24, Last Week Tonight, and Global Dispatches, with an additional members-only clip from Vox. And stay tuned to the end, where I will be dissecting a masterclass in Whataboutism Propaganda?
1: Take me back to 2010. FIFA president Seth Blatter announces two World Cup hosts at once. So for 2018, that ended up being Russia, of course. And right after, we find out that Qatar won the bid for 2022. And what kind of reaction did that set off in the football world?
2: Jamie, even hearing you say that, I still can't believe it happened or <laughs> that it happened. And 12 years later, we are now on the cusp of it becoming a reality because it is that insane yeah there were two and russia was a shock this is putin's russia so the 2018 fifa world cup 2018 fifa world cup ladies and gentlemen will be organized in russia but the moment of shock was qatar the winner to organize The 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. This nation with no footballing pedigree, they'd never qualified for the tournament before. A state that's smaller than Connecticut, um, which FIFA's own analysts, they take all of the bids and they analyse them, had given red flags all over this bid that the nation (laughs) was so unprepared for the tournament their stadia. Uh, One of them was proposed to be built in a city which itself had not yet been built. And beyond that, the weather, a desert It's so hot. 120 degrees in the summer. You know, Qatar talked about radio-controlled clouds and air-conditioned stadia, but it felt like a sci-fi bit. It felt so craven, so ridiculous, so brazen. But there's very little rationality in the administration. There's only greed and corruption, which is a stain of this game and this World Cup, as I'm sure we'll discuss, it's unravelled before our eyes.
1: So, talk to me about the corruption allegations that have been leveled against FIFA since since that fateful day in 2010 when they announced Qatar yeah. was getting the World Cup.
2: Yeah, I, I've just finished this podcast with my friend Tommy Vito of
1: Yeah, it's very Media. good. Yeah,
2: you are, you were, despite the fact that I'm in it, Jamie, it is very good. <laughs> And um, it's a six-part deep dive into why FIFA football's organising body that's meant to safeguard football would award this to Qatar. Why Qatar would want the eyes of the world on it um, in this way? I think in ways it's fair to be said they never imagined the scrutiny uh, that would ensue. And we interviewed in this, you know, journalists, we interviewed... Government figures, we interviewed people from the Department of Justice in the United States. And there was a Department of Justice spokesperson, Matthew Miller, who went to the bid in 2010 to accompany the United States. The United States thought they were going to win this bid. They've been told Mm -hmm. they were going to win this bid. Many powers in FIFA thought they were going to win this bid. And Matthew Miller went, he went with the great Morgan Freeman, who was meant to be our spokesperson. Uh, so he championed <laughs> Morgan Freeman over there. And the night before the bid, he watched in the hotel where all the, the bigwigs were, you know, including President Clinton, who went over to witness this great moment of American glory. Um, and he watched the power brokers be ushered up to the Qatari suite and then come down as if they'd just been awarded an an all-paid-for trip to Disneyland, just stars in their eyes, hitting the bar immediately. And he said, I have never seen anything more corrupt in my life. And in his words, and he said, I cut my teeth in New Jersey politics. (laughs) And Tony Soprano will roll in his grave when he hears that. But there's 24 members of the executive committee. They were the ones who were making the voting decisions on where these two bids would be. It's the perfect number to bribe and be bribed. Um, and Sepp Blatter, uh, which only sounds like a uh, an infection of the down belows by name, he was actually a Swiss guy who was then FIFA president. Yesterday, 12 years too late, he went to the press in Switzerland and said the award of the 2022 World Cup to Qatar was, quote, a mistake. And he revealed in the article, he said the French vote was the swing vote. Uh, and he said there was a a meeting with Sarkozy at the presidential palace and the, the head of French football, and elite footballer called Michel Platini, where the Qatari crown prince, who's now the emir, met with them both. And that six months after those meetings, Qatar brought fighter jets from the French worth $14.6 billion dollars. That's an indicator of how all of this was done.
1: The other big controversy here is is the construction of these facilities, right? Uh, Qatar has among the world's highest proportion of migrant workers versus regular citizens. There's actually over 2 million migrant workers, often from Southeast Asia. And, and some estimates say uh, that's up to 90% of the population. I did not know that until today. So there are only about hundred thousand huh? people that live there. Yeah. Um, and what have the conditions been like for those workers as they built the facilities for this World Cup.
2: Yeah, just over 300,000 citizens. You know, there's there's a couple of million people that live there, but almost all of them are imported. Essentially, the state wanted this, so they weren't forced to, but forced the state to develop on a an untold scale to be ready to receive one and a half million tourists. Um, And the bid was originally a standard bid. The World Cup, since its earliest origins, was in summer. It's always been in summer. It's a summer tournament in football's break. But Qatar, in the summer, a desert climb, murderously hot, 120 degrees up to. uh, You can't play football, no matter what Star Wars elements that the the Qatari (laughs) bid had about. That was not really... Ever going to work?
3: Kata says its eco-friendly stadiums will keep visitors comfortable, whatever the season. But a World Cup is about more than just the football. And Sepp Blatter has begun to realise maybe air conditioning an entire country isn't realistic.
2: And as we got closer and closer to the World Cup it was decided that they would move this tournament into November.
4: Well, January and February were ruled out to avoid clashing with the 2022 Winter Olympics. And uh, April is also out because the fasting month of Ramadan begins on the 2nd. And after that, it'll simply just be too hot. Uh, From May to September, the conditions will be unbearable for both the players and the fans. So with two consecutive months...
2: But off the field... That's where the human darkness has really been for this World Cup. Six and a half thousand uh, foreign workers were revealed to have lost their lives since the bid was awarded to make Qatar tournament-ready, building the roads, building the hotels, building the transport infrastructure, as well as the stadia. The data
3: comes from just a handful of the countries of origin for workers in Qatar. It doesn't include some of the major contributing nations like the Philippines and Kenya, but it's a fairly safe bet that a lot of them would not have been in the country
4: had it not won the right to host the World Cup.
2: It's almost mind-boggling when you hear about... The work relationship in the kafala system, which has been compared to
3: modern slavery. The sponsors use people in other countries like Bangladesh, for example, as agents. Their job is to travel around looking for workers. Once they find them, the agent takes money for a visa and the worker makes their way to Qatar. Because the worker's residency rights are tied to their employment contracts, the sponsor can stop them switching jobs. And the inability to change employer leaves workers open to exploitation.
2: Uh, I should say the Qatari government have pushed back very, very hard on this. Mm -hmm. They claim that only three people uh, have actually died in this time, but as a Guardian um, have reported it out. And so this World Cup, which is, it's the joyous spine to my life. Every four years, it's how I measure time. Millions of people around the world feel exactly the same. And now we have to work out how to confront this tournament, which is quite literally soaked in blood for our entertainment. Not only us, but the team's. The Danish team have announced they're going to wear a special kit that's been yeah. designed to mask their logo because they want to play football, they want to be in the World Cup, but they don't. They feel a deep shame, and they want to signal that shame. They have a second strip, which is actually black uh, for mourning. Um, the Australian team: a stunning video, long video, in which sixteen of their players, with clearly deep research and incredible moral intelligence, we stand with faith, bro the Building and Woodworkers International and the International Trade Union Confederation seeking to embed reforms and establish a lasting legacy in Qatar. This is
5: how we can ensure a legacy that goes well beyond the final whistle of the 2022 FIFA World Cup.
2: One that football. We're trying to analyse this World Cup, Jamie, in a split screen. You know, what's going to happen on the field? Argentina, England, France, the rest. But what's happening off it? We need to keep eyes on, uh, and ultimately to ensure, as as Saudi Arabia is trying to get hold of the 2030 World Cup, to make sure that this kind of craven decision-making never happens again.
6: What does Qatar
3: want?
6: Well, Qatar is a country that it's been a statelet. So it's a very small state. Up until the 70s, it's been a protectorate under the protection of the British Empire, after which the discovery of oil made it much more economically relevant to the Middle East. And since the 2000s, with the discovery of liquefied natural gas, it's made it relevant for the entire globe. It's a country with less than a million people it's a country with also no ecological basis for agriculture, no running water, no permanent bodies of water that can be used for agriculture. They basically have to recycle their own sewage to be able to um, grow the tiny bits of food that they do grow. And then everything else is imported. And so what Qatar wants is A, to develop its state in a way that is um, not simply defined by its uh, fossil fuel endowment. And secondly, it wants to exit the great shadow that uh, Saudi Arabia places upon it. If you remember in around four years ago, Qatar was kicked out of the Gulf Cooperation Council, which is basically the EU for Gulf countries. So Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Qatar, the Emirates and then Bahrain and Oman are part of this coalition. It's a co-economic, political and um, military sort of alliance. But because Qatar has always been the odd child of the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, it's always wanted to play a bigger role than Saudi Arabia and the bigger players in the GCC were dictating. I think the World Cup comes into this narrative, into the story as a sort of what... Um, people would call rather sarcastically now a coming out event because it's a way in which you can show your infrastructure to the whole world. It's a way to show your organizational skills, your capacity to handle extreme influx of people and to demonstrate what the state believes its culture is and sort of tell the world, come look at me, here's what I've made. I think this is the intention of most Qataris probably, especially the Qatar statement. thinking about the World Cup. We have already seen in the, in the short time that the tournament's been in, in, in motion. English fans going on the hunt for beer and, and, and things like that. There's been this big controversy over the wearing of um, rainbow armbands by the captains of, of England and Wales and the risk of um, those players being, being given yellow cards. And it, it seems like they've now decided against doing that. We also, with the score at 2-0 to Ecuador yesterday, saw Qatari dignitaries leaving the game early, clearly quite unhappy at the way the game was going. Is there a chance that hosting the World Cup might backfire? I do think it would backfire. And that's the main reason why I'm hesitant to use the sports-washing framework to understand what's going on in Qatar. Because ultimately what I think is happening is what I referred to in the beginning, which is that a World Cup or the Olympics or any sort of global event taking place, even like things like the UAE Expo, they are what we would, what I would refer to as a coming out event. You're telling everyone, come and look at me, come and look at my culture, what I stand for, what I'm able to give you. And you kind of have to deal with the criticism. And of course, because it's a global event, it becomes one of those events where universal values are discussed, like homosexuality and whether we accept it. There was this interview with this English journalist whereby the English journalist was trying to assert that homosexuality was illegal in Qatar and that the Qatari state might be prejudiced against homosexuals. And then the Qataris would revert back and say, actually, we'll arrest a heterosexual for PDA, for public display of affection. We're not against homosexuality per se. We are a country that is modest. And our problem is with the public display of affection of any kind. Now, that's true, but that also points to a deeper truth, which is in a lot of Arab countries, there is a liberal scene because this country is attracting global consultants, people who are now also coming for just to see the football. Countries like the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain as well, when they attract global cosmopolitan people working in either tech industries or engineering or finance, there is almost a social contract whereby any dubious events which would not be approved of, whether it's drinking, whether it's worshipping like non-Muslim entities, whether it's um, um, just general like disrespect or like non-alignment with uh, Eastern values. These can happen as long as it's in a private house or a hotel room. Private property allows you the right to maintain your Western sort of like activities, whatever they may be, whether it's drinking, partying, not engaging in gender segregation. And then if you want to engage in the public sphere as either someone who's simply walking or working at work, you have to revert back and re-engage with Qatari and Saudi values. Now, the World Cup complicates this division because the events that are happening there are obviously public, but a lot of people have not been ingrained into the system. And I think ultimately it might fire back against the Qatari state, but at the same time, it just pushes the Qataris to sort of evaluate their culture and their premises in a global light, which is in a way what the 21st century is about. I think the light that's been shown on um, migrants is um, very helpful. This is not just the case of Qatar. This is the case of the entirety of the Arabian Peninsula, including Lebanon as well, which is not even a Gulf country, but employs a similar um, labor law, which is known as the kafala system. All of these things being under a global sort of microscope, I think it is ultimately positive. The way the Qatari state will deal with them, I'm not sure um, what will be the end goal, obviously. But I think, in my opinion, from my perspective, this um, sort of spotlight is positive, And I'm not sure how the Qatari state will manage it eventually.
7: What has come out recently are more and more reports of deaths of migrant workers that are related to the World Cup. And at the same time, there has been increased pressure from European football players and federations to um, withdraw support for the cup based on not only migrant workers deaths, but also um, issues like gay rights Um, People might assume that women's rights are at the center of this, but they're they're actually not um, necessarily or haven't been in the reports that hasn't seemed to be, you know, Qatari women can vote. It is a monarchy. Um, So, of course, civil rights are very, very limited, but that's the case for men as well. There are stricter restrictions under Sharia law. And um, that is going to probably prompt a lot of activity on the ground to try to make safe spaces for LGBTQ um, communities. But the al family, which rules Qatar and has for decades, has been bent on improving its image on the international stage this is part and parcel of um, their program. So it's been, it's ongoing, and and we've seen this uptick in both reporting and protests. So because
8: there is so much construction around a World Cup, and often because they have to do it so rapidly, it is not uncommon, sadly, for there to be deaths of stadium construction workers and labor abuse issues. So for example, in South Africa in 2010, There was at least one construction worker who died, and at one point, 70,000 workers went on strike, halting the stadium construction at the time. Brazil, in 2014, nine people died during the building or refurbishing of the 12 venues for the World Cup. There was an Al Jazeera piece from 2014 that said, quote, many laborers who worked on construction projects ahead of the World Cup say they experienced rights abuses, including long hours and dangerous conditions. There were reports of 84-hour work weeks for these construction workers in Brazil, Russia in 2018, 21 construction workers died on a stadium building site. There was a Human Rights Watch report uh, at the time that said that many workers face exploitation and labor abuses in Russia. And I think it's important to note that, quote, this is how the New York Times wrote this up, quote, FIFA, soccer's corruption-plagued governing body, lacked transparency and had failed to demonstrate that its monitoring system had effectively identified, prevented, and corrected stadium labor conditions. But I think it's important to say that what is happening, what has happened in Qatar up to this point is like
7: on a whole other level from what we've seen in these previous World Cups. A recent report released by The Guardian has said that deaths are probably underreported, but at least 6,500 people have died and migrant workers have frequently been categorized as dying of quote-unquote natural causes. The deaths have not been investigated. They are frequently from heat stroke From unsafe working conditions on construction sites, they have had abuses in terms of their housing, their freedom of movement, often their passports have been confiscated, and so what we've seen is a total lack of transparency and accountability in regard to these deaths.
9: One thing that I really want to add about, you know, the populations that make up those that have died, the workers that have died, is that predominantly South Asian. And I think that's really important in the scheme of things, because these are some of the countries in the world that do not affect the FIFA World Cup in terms of participation. Um, India, Nepal, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka are not countries that qualify even through the AFC. And it's, it's, it's horribly and horrifically ironic that they're actually the bodies of which these stadiums will be built on. And by the time we get to 2020, it is estimated, and it was, you know, in a report in 2013, we're going to link some of them because we've actually collected a lot of reports and reporting throughout the years, is that there will be almost 11,000 people who have would have died. And, you know, some of the reports are actually quite detailed. So just a trigger warning for anyone that goes through them that the whole situation is egregious and unacceptable. But one of the things that, you know, they tried to do was in 2013 there was a workers charter actually launched. And the BBC did report on it. We'll add to the show notes. But I do want to also bring attention to just the general lack of care for workers in Qatar from 2013. Also, there was a French footballer named Zahir Balounas who actually threatened to go on hunger strike because he was playing for a club in Qatar and he wasn't being released. And when we say, like, it's very important not to divorce the royal family and what they own and control over these other things, they definitely have a say in everything that goes on in that country. That's how these type of, you know, autocratic monarchies work in the gulf particularly so just drawing from that like we knew there was it, it was a bad situation but when even the culture around football is so stringently rigidly controlled to a violent manner where families don't have freedom of mobility and that's something else we have to remember with these workers be they professional footballers be they you know working in construction their passports are taken from them they do not have the right Mobility, they have to apply for an exit visa. And this is not something that I think we think of in the Western world. And those of us who are privileged enough to have passports, we don't have to ask to leave. Asking to leave is more can be more stressful than just entering a country. So this happens in a lot of, you know, in Middle Eastern countries and certain places, exit visas are required. So I mean that's something that we need to keep in mind as we as we look at this. My friend Rafia Zakaria actually wrote a piece very recently for Dawn, the newspaper, the main newspaper, English-speaking newspaper in Pakistan, and she wrote about workers in FIFA in Qatar. And she actually said that there are many Pakistanis who are actually working there, and this is why this part of the world should care. And whether it's Dubai or Doha or Sharjah, you know, it's just so, so difficult because the situation at home in their home countries is so incredibly bleak that it seems as if there's this ton of money And, you know, that's not what happens is that. So anyways, all this to say that the system that was currently there, the Qataris recently tried to change. So it was called kafala and that was considered a reform. So this is what, uh, Rafia wrote. Qatar must be congratulated for its Kafala reform initiative, as human rights advocates and labor leaders have pointed out time and again that Kafala system amounts to a form of indentured servitude. In tethering employees to employers, unjust, coercive, and abusive, it has long been seen employees either bear the difficult conditions, including most of the non-payment of the wages, or be returned home. This latter option is not a possibility because many have incurred huge debts in order to get there in the first place. And this has been the locus of interminable cycles of abuse for hundreds of thousands of foreign workers. It is likely that the Qataris have been inspired to make these labour law changes owing to the scrutiny they have received and are likely to further encounter because they will host the FIFA Cup next year. Just the other day, Amnesty International released an open letter to Mr. Gianni Infantino, the president of FIFA. The letter specifically expressed concern over the Qatari Shura Council's transigence over the kafala system and the change of employer. It is also noted that even when labor reforms are made in Qatar, they are rarely implemented.
0: This holiday season, the easiest way to get all of your gifting done while supporting Best of Left is to just remember one URL, bestofleft.com slash holiday. From there, we link to our two favorite ways to buy books, both physical and audio, as well as our merch store, where you can get our designs, of course, along with the great works from thousands of other artists at the same time, and we get a commission on everything you buy. Not to mention, of course, we also have best-of-the-left gift memberships for the real intellectuals on your list. For books, both Bookshop and Libro are the best way to go because their whole business model is set up to help support local brick-and-mortar bookshops, not attempt to run them out of business. And... Both offer great gifting options. For instance, Libro offers audiobook credit bundles, which is great for gifts, and here's why. When you buy audiobook credit bundles, they are at a discounted price, and when your recipient redeems them, they don't have to worry about the price at all. Nearly all of Libro's books are available for the cost of one credit, regardless of what their normal dollar value is. So you get to give more for less, and your giftee doesn't have to think about money at all and can simply pick which books they want and pay one credit per title. And for our merch store, obviously Best of Left Gear is great, but it may not be right for everyone on your list. Seriously, feel free to explore the entirety of the store because it is full of amazing designs that you can put on tees and other items. Honestly, one of my favorite parts of the holidays is watching the commission emails roll in, not because I'm getting rich, I'm not really, but because I get to see what people bought without having any idea who bought them, of course. Your your privacy is secured, but I get to see what people bought and I have seen some amazing designs get purchased in previous years, so you're definitely gonna wanna check that out. And finally, best of luck gift memberships, I think are probably fairly self-explanatory. It's a great way to directly support the show And help spread the joy of Best of Left to those on your list. So, again, that one URL is bestofleft.com/slash/holiday. There's also a link in the show notes and a big banner on our homepage so you can't miss it:
10: bestofleft.com/slash/holiday. Give me a sense of how important soccer is to the Middle East.
5: You know, the game is is definitely the most popular sport uh, anywhere in this region. You see entire cities kind of turn out for their, you know, major club matches. You can hear a pin drop whenever the national teams are playing, whether it's in Egypt or Algeria or Morocco, because everyone is sort of tuned in, whether in their radios, in the cafes, or even those who are attending the matches in stadiums. So there's a real passion in a sense that you know the the national teams tend to be kind of really representative of the entire country in a way that you could even argue is more representative of the population and of the society than sometimes their own political leaders are. The game was introduced really through the colonial experience. Most of the countries in the Middle East were at one point or another colonized by either Britain or France. And so it was during the course of that colonial experience that you see colonial officials introducing new educational curriculums, trying to modernize the population. Part of that included things like physical education that they believed was important to develop what they called properly obedient individuals.
10: Uh.
4: With the sole of the
5: foot. And so this meant kind of introducing the game as kind of, you know, a very structured game with a set of rules. For ball control is essential to skillful play. That required a certain kind of discipline and that this was ultimately going to kind of educate them into a sort of western way of thinking and acting and so this was the way that they tried to kind of groom and cultivate the elites within the societies that they conquered
11: and through games like heading tennis keeping the boys
5: interested in learning the right way of bringing the head into contact with the ball but of course the game like most things when it comes to popular culture has the, the tendency to take on a life of its own. And all of a sudden it becomes a source of empowerment for populations against colonial rule
10: Against colonial rule and then later against authoritarian rule, right? So Abdullah, I lived in Cairo during the Arab Spring and I'd cover these massive protests and I knew to look out for the ultras, the super fans of these big teams like Ahli and Zamalek because they were an organized contingent. They seemed to be leading things. And for an American journalist, it was like, I cannot imagine, you know, Jets fans doing this.
5: We're talking about authoritarian contexts, especially in places like Egypt and Algeria and Syria and, and elsewhere, where you don't see the opportunity for people to simply found a political party or to simply go and, and kind of organize explicitly on a political basis.
4: The Cairo derby
12: is the biggest fixture in the Middle East's football calendar. A bitter rivalry between Africa's two most successful teams, Akhli and Zamalek.
5: And so what we tend to see more of is a kind of an alternative politics, which means people within society are likely to gather through things that might seem innocuous from the perspective of the regime. This is politics. Zemalek is the government. You know, well, you're not going to really prevent people from gathering in stadiums or coffee houses or you know hookah lounges where they're going to sit and watch matches and support their favorite clubs. And at the same time, that then becomes an opportunity by which people do ultimately, naturally engage in political discussion.
1: The Ahli Club ideas, ethics, strategies, plans
4: didn't contradict with the idea of revolution. They are actually the same.
5: And so the idea that football fan groups were a part of the kind of the collective of people who mobilized in these mass protests in places like, you know, Tahrir Square or even in Pearl Roundabout in Bahrain, for instance, or in Yemen or in Syria or Libya or Algeria, these groups tended to already have that kind of sense of camaraderie, having already fought off security forces when they were confronting the police in stadiums. (laughs)
10: Batil. 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 Batil.
5: Ahmed Al- so when there was this assault by the security forces in a number of these places, we end up seeing that it's actually the football ultra groups that tend to kind of stand firm um, in defense of the protesters in Tahrir Square. And I think that also then helped encourage the broader movements that were protesting and mobilizing in those days be able to stand firm. And so we, we saw quite an effective resistance to a lot of the typical crackdowns that we saw on the part of the state.
10: All right. So you have this combination of beautiful game, extraordinary history of protest. But Abdullah, let me ask you now about the criticism of Qatar because investigative reporting suggests that many migrant workers died while building these stadiums and all of this other infrastructure that you guys have gotten. Qatar's Amir, its leader, says essentially, the rest of the world is picking on us because we're a little Arab country. Do you think he has a point?
5: I happen to think that a lot of the questions that have been raised around the way that the Qatar World Cup has come together uh, are incredibly valid and they're serious questions that need to be taken on without sort of any kind of equivocating. But I don't think it's been helpful that so much of these critiques relied on very borderline orientalist kind of narratives of just creating an exceptional situation that Qatar occupies without actually taking on the kind of the much deeper serious issues having to do with things like the global flow of labor and capital and all of the various parties that are implicated T- to just simply say, you know, this is just something that, um, you know, is, is just the product of a certain culture um, or a certain kind of specific environment, as opposed to kind of thinking about all of these different uh, forces that have converged to create the, the kind of conditions that exist.
4: human rights record has overshadowed everything in this world cup even the players are talking politics rather than football
13: the winner to
2: organize the 222 fifa world cup
4: is qatar many of those now playing for their national side were teenagers when qatar was chosen england defender eric dyer was 16 but he told journalists Qatar's treatment of migrant workers was a terrible situation. FIFA's president had written to players like Dyer, urging them to focus on football, not politics. Failing to shut down the debate, Gianni Infantino chose a different tactic today. He went on the attack, accusing Qatar's critics of hypocrisy.
13: I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years, Around the world we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons. Hundreds of thousands of workers from developing countries come here, they earn 10 times more than what they earn in uh, their home country. We in Europe, we close our borders, and we don't allow practically any worker from these countries.
4: Both Qatar and FIFA have disputed claims that six and a half thousand migrant workers have died building the World Cup stadiums. They say the official number of work related deaths is just three.
3: We hear a lot about sports washing, uh, but this was FIFA washing, uh, insisting that everything would be hunky dory and we shouldn't worry about anything. He accused um, Western journalists and the Western uh, countries of hypocrisy. But I
2: think he was also guilty of the same thing.
4: And FIFA's president went from the bizarre to the ridiculous today when he got personal.
13: I know what it means to be discriminated, to be bullied as a foreigner in a foreign country. As a child at school, I was bullied because I had red hair and I had these red, how do you call them, Freckles. Freckles.
3: Two, four, six, eight. Qatar must legislate.
4: Those comments infuriated protesters outside the Qatar embassy in London this afternoon.
5: Well, regardless of his own experience, the most important thing right now is the suffering of Qatari people, particularly women, LGBTs and migrant workers. His statement is an insult to their suffering.
4: The World Cup starts tomorrow with the home side playing Ecuador. Politics won't be far away. The England and Wales captains will be wearing one-love armbands to raise awareness of discrimination. An act of rebellion, be it small, in a country where same-sex relationships are outlawed. It is day two of the World Cup in Qatar,
14: and while the games are well underway, it's what's happening off the pitch that's making headlines. The captains of several European teams were planning on playing with armbands, supporting diversity and inclusion in a gesture seen as a rebuke to Qatar's human rights record. But FIFA wouldn't have it. The governing body threatened players with on-field punishment, a risk they knew would be too great for the athletes to take.
13: England, Wales and Germany were three of the seven European national teams who wanted to set an example for tolerance and inclusion with a rainbow-themed armband and the statement one Love." FIFA saw things differently. While not expressly banning the armbands, FIFA said referees would sanction players who wore them with a yellow card.
6: FIFA
15: today banned a statement in favour of diversity and human rights. These are values to which it commits itself in its own statutes. This is more than frustrating from our point of
6: view.
13: FIFA got their way, and the evidence was on the arm of England captain Harry Kane. It appears that no European nation wants to risk a yellow card to make a political statement.
14: And for more on this, we can bring in Mustafa Kadri. He's a specialist in human rights and labor rights. Welcome to the day. Mr. Kadri. first it was supposed to be a rainbow armband. Then the teams bowed to pressure and decided on a one-love armband for diversity and inclusion. Now, I think they've settled on one reading, no discrimination. Why did FIFA raise the stakes for players wanting to take a stand at the World
12: Cup? Well, I think, to be honest, firstly, thank you for having me on your show and for raising these issues. It's very important. I think, frankly, it's death by a thousand cuts. What we've seen is backtracking by FIFA and, let's face it, those behind them, which is the football associations, the teams and corporate sponsors uh, uh, towards Qatar to effectively not address the human rights issues in that country and instead everyone else compromising for them. So, Really, it's quite disappointing. But the other thing that's most important is the signal it sends to the LGBTI community and indeed anyone facing human rights issues, not just in Qatar, not just in the region, but globally. You have these very powerful, prominent players, you know, giving into this. And, of course, for FIFA itself, that claims to be a force for good, respecting human rights. It sends the worst possible signal at the very beginning of the tournament. But it's simple things, you know. I mean, if, for example, the Qataris were to allow their guests in the country to wear things like rainbow flags, allow armbands that are very soft reflections of the need to respect the rights of everyone, that would go a long way to making people feel like they're doing the right thing. So I think in many ways Qatar itself is to blame for this situation. And, of course, so is FIFA. You know, we obviously heard from Infantino, the president of FIFA, on Saturday giving a really bizarre and in some ways very insulting speech. The thing that people really need to understand about that speech is it's effectively him signaling to the Qataris that he won't put any pressure on them to address very real human rights issues. The thing to really also emphasize is Qatar is not a free society, it is an absolute monarchy. The opportunities for leverage on things like human rights and social reform are very few and far between. This is probably the most unprecedented time to have those kind of changes. FIFA is one of the few entities on the planet that can actually influence how Qatar uh, uh, responds to human rights. So for them to surrender the way that they have, absolutely the tournament is being overshadowed by these issues, but there's very good reason for that. And on top of that, still, even now, there is time for things to shift, but frankly, that window is narrowing by the moment, by the second
6: banned by FIFA but booming in demand these armbands being printed in the Netherlands are intended to send a message against discrimination at the World Cup in Qatar homosexuality is illegal in the Gulf state and many have been wearing the armbands in a show of support for the LGBTQ community the spike in demand is, is really a result of the FIFA banding this product to be in the World Cup 2022. And by that, a lot of people thought, hey, this is wrong. We should adapt that product. And it becomes a culture product at the moment. And we're getting requests from all parts of the world to buy this product. Amazing. FIFA said that any players wearing the armbands during games risked a yellow card, causing teams like England to ditch the idea altogether. Others across the world have been buying them up since. All different kind of people. Consumers just to have the band and to make a statement all the way up to the European Parliament who just ordered 500 pieces to make a political statement of the band.
3: Made some significant labour reforms. It's something that the head of their World Cup efforts has proudly bragged about.
12: If we look at the actions that the government has taken so far, laws implemented and being applied as well, um, the kafala system has been dismantled, both in terms of allowing for workers to change employers and at the same time also there was the uh, uh, exit permit mm-hmm. system. They uh, couldn't leave without. They couldn't permission. leave without permission.
3: That has been dismantled as well. Look, those reforms sound great, and to an extent they are, but they also have some major asterisks on them. Workers in Qatar have said that they are still required to get permission from their current employer before they can move to a new job, and have also experienced retaliation from their employers when they try to leave. But also, the reforms that he's bragging about there only began to be implemented in 2018, when much of the hard work was already done. So he is bragging about dismantling the kafala system while sitting in a stadium built using it. The only way that pat on the back could have been more hypocritical is if he'd forced a migrant worker to do it for him in 120-degree heat. But, incredibly, it's not just Qatar bragging about the progress that's been made. FIFA has had the nerve to claim credit for it, too. All the
13: changes that have happened in this country in terms of human rights and workers' rights and so on, human rights, would not have happened Or certainly not at the same speed without
3: the projectors
13: of uh, the World Cup.
3: Okay, corruption, Caillou. That is one hell of a fucking claim there. Because you cannot possibly argue FIFA deserves credit here. FIFA's evaluation of Qatar's bid had literally zero mentions of human rights or demands for labour reforms. Think of it like this. If the country had made no changes to its kafala system in the past few years, and instead had passed a law called the Doubling Down on Slave Labour Act of 2019, you know what would have happened? The World Cup still would have kicked off in Qatar today. Isn't that right, Laib? Wink if you agree. Yeah, I fucking knew it. I knew you knew what was going on there. When FIFA awarded Qatar the World Cup, there was only one way those stadiums were getting built and there was only one group of people who were going to do it and they gave them the tournament anyway. And that is not the only troubling thing that they had to have known back then. Because let's take a moment to talk about Qatar's human rights situation. And I recognise every country has human rights issues, including this one. For more on that, see every other story this show has ever done. (laughs) But Qatar is, in some ways, next level. Women there have very limited rights. They need permission from their male guardians to marry, work in many government jobs, and travel abroad until certain ages. Also, because sex outside of marriage is illegal, pregnant women have to present a marriage certificate to receive prenatal care, which I hesitate to even tell you about, just in case the Supreme Court is watching this show tonight (laughs) and getting any new ideas. As for the LGBT community, sexual conduct between men is criminalised and can result in seven years in prison. And FIFA was not unaware of this. Sepp Blatter even joked about it just days after Qatar was awarded the tournament. Because when he was asked what advice he would give to gay fans who might want to travel to Qatar, this was his fun response.
5: Then uh, I would say then that they should refrain from any sexual activities. <laughs>
3: You know, they say in comedy, you can either punch up, punch down or co-sign oppressive governments for a quick laugh while looking like the penguin went to Wharton. And we all know which option he just chose there. Get Sepp Blatter a Netflix special, it seems like he's ready. Now, Qatar has frequently repeated that everyone is welcome at this World Cup, including gay fans. But as this gay Qatari man, who was granted asylum in the US, citing the dangers he faced there, points out, even if that is the case for the next four weeks... It's a hell of a blind eye to turn. It's like having a um, a
15: household with children that are domestically abused. And now you're going to have a fancy dinner party. People can can come in, they can bring their kids, their kids can jump on the table, and they can do everything that they want. The children that live there are going to be in the basement, quiet, behaving, And they can't jump on the table like the other kids that visited. Because they will be punished in that household for doing it. Well, now you know that the children there are abused.
3: So how are you showing up to our home? Exactly. The Qatari government is engaging in some truly horrendous behaviour, and we can't just gloss over that and uncritically put it in the spotlight. It's an authoritarian regime, not Mel fucking Gibson. by the way, here's a fun game. Guess how many movies he's been in this year? You're wrong. It's seven. This truly has been the year of Mel. And none of this, the working conditions, the oppression of women or gay people, was a deal-breaker for FIFA. In fact, Qatar's authoritarian tendencies may actually have been a deal sweetener. Because FIFA has long had a soft spot for autocrats. And I'm not just saying that because they gave the World Cup to Russia in 2018 or went ahead with one in Argentina in 1978 when it was run by a military dictatorship or even that they held the second World Cup ever in Mussolini's Italy in 1934. They've said it themselves. FIFA's former Secretary General, Jerome Valk, once said, I will say something which is crazy. But less democracy is sometimes better for organising a World Cup. When you have a very strong head of state, that is easier for us organisers. And even for a quote which is prefaced by I will say something which is crazy, that is fucking nuts! (laughs) But authoritarians are good for FIFA, and FIFA is good for authoritarians. As this critic points out, Russia's World Cup four years ago was preceded by a lot of controversy and criticism but that's not what people remember about it.
5: What you saw in the run-up to 2018 was a lot of coverage of what was happening in Russia, a lot of coverage of the rights abuses, a lot of interest in that, a lot of engagement in it. And I think what the Qataris will have noticed was how that all vanished as soon as the first whistle blew. And I think everyone became captivated by the football. The Qataris know that if they can just get to that first whistle, then they're they're over the line.
3: It's true. Such is the power of the World Cup. Any memories of controversy are likely to be washed away once it begins. And incidentally, what a VIP box to be a part of there. (laughs) Quick tip for the president of FIFA. If you're going to make arguments about how your organisation is a global force for good, maybe try not to sit between Mohammed bin Salman and Vladimir Putin because you are the filling in a real shit sandwich there. (laughs) And the thing is, That first whistle has now been blown. Qatar played Ecuador in the opening game of the tournament earlier today. So, what now? Well, workers like Anish hope that some of the athletes participating can help shine a light on all the exploitation that went into this event.
5: My message for Messi. Thousands of workers like me have worked on the stadium. We did not get our salary, our benefits. I hope that if you talk about workers like us, Maybe we will get what we are owed. I do not have
10: much faith, but still, I have hope.
3: Yeah, and that hope is pretty moving, especially given all the reasons not to have any.
15: A general point to emphasize is. Very little of any of these issues that have been surfacing in recent months and years are a surprise, right? So just to give from another context, LGBT people's rights in Qatar are severely restricted. Human Rights Watch and others have actually documented even recently as of September of LGBT people being mistreated, detained, in some cases, you know, forced to go to a kind of government conversion center. And this is something that people have been raising the alarm about for years, yet FIFA still decided not only to have Qatar host the World Cup, but not really push forward on real changes in the country that would protect both fans and residents, which is changing discriminatory laws that exist. Among them, most important being if you are found to have same-sex relations, or even sex outside marriage, you could face up to seven years in prison.
11: So FIFA does not necessarily have a reputation as being the most above-the-board entity, but was there anything they could have done in the run-up to the World Cup to perhaps mitigate some of the expected labor exploitation in particular that occurred?
15: Absolutely. I I think... The most important thing that FIFA could have done is simply impose conditions or require basic human rights protections to be in place before the kind of construction began or before a host was selected for the World Cup. I mean, I think it's a broader theme for mega sporting events that are held in places with very serious kind of human rights concerns, which is there need to be very clear set of conditions that incorporate human rights standards before a host is awarded a a, a tournament, right? I mean, it's such a clear example in this case of when you don't have those conditions, just how bad the reality can be, right? In Qatar's case, there are thousands of unexplained deaths that are linked to this building of the World Cup infrastructure that were absolutely preventable. And yet FIFA only very belatedly tried to, you know, adopt a human rights policy like they have in 2017 and on occasion references human rights language. But even now, their language is pretty negative, right? They've essentially told the, you know, football associations calling for human rights to be respected or calling for a compensation fund for migrant workers to say, you know, focus on the football or more colloquially, shut up and play, right? We don't want to hear it. From football associations. So yeah, I mean, FIFA's not done a great job. I think maybe you could argue has done a terrible job, you know, in terms of for this World Cup, ensuring that the conditions were in place to kind of protect minimum standards of human rights.
11: So you just alluded to this, but there have now been several major sporting events held in illiberal countries over the last few years. We had the Olympics in Sochi, in Russia, the Olympics in Beijing, in China, and now the World Cup in Qatar. Each time there has been this discussion among human rights activists about The juxtaposition of having this major international event held alongside countries that are abusive to their own citizens and exploitative in a number of ways, yet these events keep happening. I'm wondering if it's a failure of the human rights community writ large, the fact that these major institutions, FIFA, the International Olympic Committee, keep awarding major events to illiberal countries that abuse their own citizens and impose all these human rights restrictions?
15: I think the challenge from a human rights perspective is that these institutions like FIFA, you know, have long been largely unaccountable to the base of people who they should be, right? Fans, footballers, football associations, And other entities, this kind of global community that loves sports, that loves football, right, is so distant in the minds of FIFA's senior leaders, you know, when they are making these decisions that have billions of dollars on the line, right? I mean, Qatar has said that they spent something like $220 billion in infrastructure costs associated with the kind of you know, broader preparations for this World Cup. So that's just a huge amount on the line. And unfortunately, your everyday football fan has not had the ability, as well as human rights groups, to kind of influence uh, ahead. I think here's a real question is, is that, okay, there now are human rights conditions, a human rights policy, you know, in place for FIFA, Are they going to stay committed to that for the awarding of the next World Cup in 2030? You know, which includes a bid, for instance, that I believe is made up of Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Greece, where at least two of those countries have very serious human rights concerns that hopefully would be incorporated and reviewed as part of awarding, you know, any kind of hosting. And so I think that is the question. There might have been delays in terms of human rights groups really kind of focusing on just how valuable these major sporting events are for autocratic governments trying to kind of reputation launder their terrible image. But now there are some protections in place among some organizations, but will they respect that? It's a question.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Front Burner giving a good overview of the controversies surrounding the 2022 World Cup. Pro-Revolution Soccer looked at what is at stake for Qatar and their efforts at sports-washing their reputation. Burn It All Down dove into the human rights abuses of Qatar. Today Explained discussed the colonial context of football culture in the Middle East. Channel 4 News from the UK reported on a decidedly mixed bag of a speech by FIFA's president that both justly criticized Europe and unjustifiably defended Qatar. DW News from Germany then explained that the rainbow armbands intended to show support for the LGBTQ community had been banned, and France 24 highlighted the increased demand for the armbands in the wake of them being banned. Last Week Tonight looked at the abuses of Qatar and why FIFA actually likes authoritarian governments, and Global Dispatches discussed the role that FIFA needs to step into regarding upholding human rights in World Cup host countries. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Vox going all the way back to the origins of the World Cup and the rise of FIFA.
3: The World Cup wasn't a grandiose thing back then. You know there were some upgrades to the stadiums, to so the existing infrastructure. There'd be some marketing going on, but the World Cup wasn't wasn't a truly global event. That all changed when it went on TV.
0: To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleftcom support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And just a quick final note, you just heard me describe the speech given by the president of FIFA just before the beginning of the World Cup as having been a decidedly mixed bag. and. I just have to say that I watched the whole thing, it was an hour long, and I found it to be really quite interesting. In short, I guess you could just say that it was whataboutism at its core, and that's true. But I think that it was done in a subtler and more nuanced way than whataboutism usually is, (laughs) which gave it an appeal that usually isn't there, I think. Now, to be clear, it was widely condemned by media and activists alike. So it wasn't all that convincing on the whole, but I am sure that it was a great piece of propaganda for those looking to defend the labor and human rights records of Qatar. He was speaking as a European. He's uh, from Switzerland, I think, and was leveling a fair amount of perfectly legitimate criticism at Europe partly for abuses either you know hundreds or thousands of years in in the past but also for their current policies particularly towards immigrants all good so far the problem came with the turn as he leveraged that legitimate criticism to claim somehow that no criticism coming from europe directed at anyone outside could be legitimate because of their past and That's just not how things work. If criticism is legitimate, it's legitimate. He also had a nuanced take on how social progress happens, arguing that change takes time and that different cultures are going to evolve at their own paces and along their own paths. Again, this is true, but that is then used as a premise to suggest that activism and agitation are not the way to push for change, as though it happens naturally over time. He used the example of his own father, who would not have supported LGBTQ rights, as well as uh, an area of his home country, of Switzerland, that didn't allow women to vote until the 1990s, and only then because they were forced by the Swiss courts. I didn't fact check that. That's what he said in his story. Again, there's nothing wrong with pointing out how relatively recent changes were made in what we now think of as progressive Europe, it, it is interesting to contextualize that. It is good to understand that change happens over time. But to use those examples of belated change in perspectives were then used as a defense of a country like Qatar and their laws banning same-sex relationships. He didn't defend the policies exactly, just the sort of naturalness of some places falling behind others and their progress, which he sees as a reason to not criticize Anyone who is sort of being seen as behind the times, because this could just be seen as a provocation, which could actually set the movement for rights back, not take it forward. But this either fundamentally misunderstands how minds are changed over time and how rights are won. I don't need to look it up to know that activism and agitation in Switzerland played a large role in the changing of attitudes towards the LGBTQ community from the time of his father's life to now his and, you know, even implementing universal suffrage in the 1990s. I am sure that there was activism surrounding that. It is the classic strategy of the liberal moderate. And and to be clear, you know, when he describes his own personal perspectives, he's definitely liberal. But as a representative of FIFA and a representative of the World Cup, he is being forced into this position of moderate. I mean, maybe that's his natural position, maybe it isn't. But it is the strategy of the liberal moderate to have benefited from the activism of the past only to inevitably say that now, whenever now is (laughs) that this person is talking, that now is the time to stop the activism, stop the agitation. That's actually going to take us backward. That's going to make people angry, etc. It's a universal tactic. It's used all over the world. The only difference in this case is that it's also his actual job to defend the decisions made between Qatar and FIFA regarding how the World Cup will be run. So you can see The motivation, the economic motivation, the motivation of his position in in that organization seeping through the cracks of his logic as well. But the strategy would be about the same regardless, and it's a classic strategy because it works. And it works because there is so much truth tied in that when the speaker comes to the illogical conclusion of don't criticize things which are bad it's harder to see the gaps in logic than if they had not included all of the legitimate criticism at all. If you are into understanding the techniques of propaganda and manipulation, I, I really recommend watching the full video. It's it's kind of a masterclass. You can find it by just searching FIFA President World Cup full speech, something like that, or I'm also going to include it in the show notes as well. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleftcom support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Memberships so you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to discuss the show or the news or other shows, or basically anything you like. Links to join are in the show notes. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.